Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and usually a co-host uh, will take turns introducing each other to films, and uh, in this way we catch up on our cinema. Uh, so it is the month of September 2020, uh, which means it is Masterclass Month! Uh, so if you're not familiar, um, Masterclass Month is something we've been doing uh, since the beginning of the show. Uh, we're two years in now, so this is officially an annual tradition. Um, essentially what we do is we take a look at a long-lived uh, film franchise and uh, take a look at each of the individual entries in that franchise, uh, usually from beginning to end uh, as best to our ability as we can. Uh, so this time around, we've been taking a look at the Batman film franchise, the Batmans film series, uh, beginning with the Tim Burton era in 1989, uh, moving on to the Joel Schumacher era, uh, and then just last week we wrapped up our review of the Christopher Nolan era of the franchise. That would include uh, Batman Begins, uh, The Dark Knight, and as it so happens, uh, we had almost three hours worth of material to talk about uh, for The Dark Knight Rises, hence uh, that particular era of the series being split up into two different episodes. Uh, which brings us to uh, the contemporary uh, era of the franchise, um, well, at least until Matt Reeves's The Batman uh, drops in 2021. Uh, so the era of the Batman series that we're going to be talking about today uh, would be what we're calling the Zack Snyder era, uh, however, more accurately, it's probably best described as the DC Extended Universe era of Batman. Um, so as you've probably noticed by now, um, Kyle is not present. Uh, it's just going to be you and me. Uh, so if there are any awkward pauses or some meandering uh, cul-de-sacs of, of uh, thoughts and whatnot, um, that's because it's just me here talking to myself. Um, so uh, fittingly enough, uh, a Zack Snyder uh, film quote comes to mind that would of course be his watchman um from rorschach uh, that would be i'm not in here with you you're in here with me <laughs> um so strap yourselves in uh it's gonna get wild um so uh to try to keep organized uh, i drew up a series of bullet points here so i'm gonna try my best to keep on track here but may go into the weeds every now and again. So uh, one of the first things we like to do um, in talking about um, each of these individual eras of, uh, of the Batman series is um, talking about the directors themselves. Um, so like I said, um, the official title of this episode is going to be the Zack Snyder era um, because that fits with the, the naming scheme that we've been using. Um, but in actuality, um, we honestly haven't even gotten a proper Batman film uh, since the conclusion of Christopher Nolan's tenure on the series. Um, we've gotten exactly one movie with Batman's name in the title, um, and the character's been featured in, I believe, three different movies since then, um, but none of them could be classified as a, quote, Batman film. Um, what what all these films fall under in terms of an umbrella, though, is uh, the DC Extended Universe, um, which is, of course, uh, DC slash Warner Brothers uh, equivalent um, to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU. Um, and in many ways, I feel like one, um, the MCU, uh, gave way to the other, the DCEU. Um, so, like I said, we're calling it the Zack Snyder era, and I'm mostly going to be focusing on it, on my thoughts on him as a director. Um, 
but of course other directors have have represented Batman since uh, since his initial swing at things with a uh, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice uh, let's give it the official title that it deserves um, but yeah uh, my personal background with Zack Snyder as a director is kind of surprising uh, because uh, as far as I know um, he hasn't directed that many films uh, his first um, theatrical film that would be um, much like Michael Bay he started out in advertising as far as I know but his first theatrical film was of course the uh, 2004 remake of uh, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead um, which is perfectly serviceable it's not a bad film by any means it's it gets a little wild especially towards the end but um, it really resonated with audiences when it first came out that's for sure um, it it kind of breathed a little bit of new life into the zombie subgenre. Um, it ended up creating a whole wave of zombie media that, as far as I know, we're, we're still in the afterglow of in some ways. But um, yeah, I, I think the only film of his that I haven't seen, um, and like I said, he hasn't directed that many films, um, his output isn't that extensive, is a Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul. Um, which is a CGI animated film featuring uh, owls with knives on their talons. <laughs> Armored owls. Um, I don't know if it's based on a pre-existing media property. He does seem to like to work in that particular area. Um, but as far as I know, that was a, a, a not a very successful film. Um, and with a title like that, it's hard to see why. Um, but yeah, I've seen every other movie he's done. And like I said, his output hasn't been that extensive um the the one that like put his name on the map for sure was 300 um and in a lot of ways uh, that kind of represents um his aesthetic sensibilities um dialed up to 11 um when i think of Zack snyder i, I don't think of an untalented director um I, in some ways i can't help but think of michael bay when i think of Zack snyder because i feel like uh both of them have a little bit of like a a narrative through line or like a thesis behind a lot of the projects that they take on um and one thing that i have to praise both of them for because a lot of people like to trash michael bay for sure um zack snyder too um is that they do have a readily identifiable um design motif that, that runs through a lot of their films um i i like to joke sometimes that like um when i think of like a, a vanilla film like a, like a movie that has no directorial stamp no fingerprints on it whatsoever it's like this could have been directed by a computer or or just could have been birthed into existence by a, a computer algorithm or something i think of like a brett ratner or something where it's like okay like anybody could have made that like it, i don't see any brett ratner on it it's just it's a movie it's the moviest movie i ever saw but um Zack snyder um if you look at a, a few frames of his movies, if you look at his shot choices, if you look at his editing style, if you look at his music choices in particular, it's like, yeah, that that's his. Like, I recognize that style. It's it's familiar. It it may not be your favorite, but I know who made it, and in some ways, that's that's comforting. I don't know why, but uh, and Michael Bay kind of has that going for him too, where it's like you you can tell when you're watching one of his products. Um, so I'll give Zack Snyder some praise for that. Um, where I do have some issue with him, though, and this certainly translates to his work on Batman and, and by extension, Superman, uh, Batman v Superman. Um, uh, he he has some issues with like his his editing and uh, 
I don't know if it's like choice of script or um, I think it's mostly his editing choices. Um, a lot of his a lot of his themes tend to be very heady, and there's a lot of like navel gazing that goes on, but um, there's seldom any real follow through. A lot of a lot of big ideas get put forth in a lot of his films, but we very seldom explore that material, um, and it leads to somewhat like hollow experiences. Like on a pure just like lights with sound level. Um, it's possible to enjoy his films. Uh, I actually have some issues with some of the ways he choreographs action and whatnot, even though he seems to really, really revel in it. Like he, he loves to have action scenes in his movies, but honestly, I think he has some weaknesses there. Um, but yeah, his, his editing, uh, sometimes he gets kind of creative um, with uh, scene arrangements um, and placement of themes and whatnot. But I, I don't know. I, I think it's appropriate that like when I look at like the construction of some of his action scenes, the the, the way he uh, the way he ramps, um, that would be like slow, like strategically uh, slowing down or speeding up some of that some of the beats and the choreography of his action. Um, I can't help but think of of anime. Uh, it just so happens that um, another annual tradition we have on the show is uh, anime August, wherein I subject Kyle to um, a multitude of anime titles of my choosing and uh, Kyle doesn't know shit about anime in fact he's not even interested in the medium such that we're almost thinking about doing away with it as a tradition because he doesn't really seem to get much out of it but um, I do think it's interesting that uh, when I look at his arrangement of action scenes and whatnot I, I suspect that Mr. Snyder has an appreciation for the medium um, and not only does it translate to his his action choreography, it also translates to um, the presentation of his stories, um, where I've had to kind of bow my head in silence and just kind of let Kyle tear into me and my anime from time to time, because I will readily admit that there are many Japanese animated products that um, the emotionality is there um, in terms of presentation. like. In terms of look and feel, um, like the delivery of lines and uh, like the soundtrack booming at certain times and whatnot, uh, the product slash the movie tries very, very hard to make you feel that what's happening right now is very, very, very important. Um, and oftentimes when you really, really break it down, like if you actually listen to what's being said and how it's being said, or, or listen to what's being said and not how it's being said, it's really kind of bleh. <laughs> it's like, and not only that, sometimes it's straight up confusing. Where it's like, hang on, what now? Like, like, how did they know that? I didn't know that. Why do I? Why am I being asked to care right now? Um, so I, I think it's funny that like I, I see some of that in Zack Snyder's products, and I suspect that it might come about as a result of maybe being a fan of the medium. And you know, oftentimes it's something that artists do like you, you can't help but wear your influences on your sleeve and maybe maybe that's something that rubbed off on him or it's like it's like yeah like I'm, I'm gonna like use every tool in my kit to make the audience feel something but I don't really have the script to back it and I'd really kind of botch the editing leading up to it so in the moment you know if if you've tapped into your lizard brain and you're just there for the lights with sound you might you might you might get that emotional beat, but if you're if you have too much frontal lobe action going on when you get there, it's like, 
oh wow this is kind of dumb isn't it <laughs> but um yeah I, I just wanted to lead up front with just some thoughts about Zack Snyder as a director because we are going to be talking about at least one and a half of his films uh, as we go forward um and we'll also get into what I mean by that later but um yeah I don't think he's an untalented director um I I happen to actually very much like Watchmen uh, especially the extended edition um I like what they did with Hollis like I, I like that they included his uh conclusion to his uh story um in the extended edition I haven't watched the uh complete edition that includes the the uh Black Freighter motion comic but I I mostly like Watchmen 300 even in the theater um I was kind of figuring out Zack Snyder's tricks of the trade and I was like ooh like I like Gerard Butler's uh I like his delivery, but I'm really listening to the words he's using, and it's um, it's kind of dumb. <laughs> and it, you know, as a as a lights with sound experience, it was kind of fun watching it with friends. But something that like, if I saw it on TV today by myself, I don't think I would have the time of day to revisit it. Um, Sucker Punch, I'm not even gonna fucking get into. <laughs> that's a that's a discussion and a half. Um, a lot of people have some intensely negative things to say about, but you know, there's also some people that push back pretty hard on exactly those things. So I'm going to leave that alone. Um, but yeah, one thing that we like to do, um, or we've been doing, uh, in our discussions about these Batman films, uh, is talk about our personal history with each of the individual films. Um, so for the purposes of my own sanity and, you know, keeping this thing a little bit focused, uh, I'm going to be keeping the keeping my thoughts kind of centered on Batman as much as I can. Um, but right out the gate, I, I suppose it's appropriate to just like pay lip service to Man of Steel, um, because as I had said earlier, um, Man of Steel was was kind of the the Iron Man equivalent for the DCEU, or it was the it was the genesis point for um, DC and Warner Brothers future future projects in terms of like creating uh the justice league and whatnot so the idea was to start with superman and then bring bring all the other major heroes into the fold um but yeah man of steel uh was funny enough uh produced by christopher nolan uh who of course uh helmed the previous era of the bat franchise um it was also written by david s goyer uh who wrote some of the uh some of the christopher nolan era batman films uh, so in some ways, like, I guess Zack Snyder got the leftovers, he got the table scraps. So uh, the genesis of the project, as far as I understand, was, um, when Nolan and Goyer were working on Batman, Goyer just, you know, happened to also bring up the fact that he had some ideas for a Superman story and, you know, Nolan thought it was not a bad idea, but, uh, he was contracted to do a Batman film, uh, so that, you know, those ideas got shelved until we could get to them, um, and like I said, in a lot of ways, I feel like the the catalyst, um, the the thing that kind of got things rolling uh, in terms of putting out Man of Steel in 2013 was more than likely uh, the birth of the MCU. Because uh, I mean, you need to, you need to remember that like Iron Man is pointed to as the the beginning of the MCU, but when it first came out, just because they had a post credits tease that you know there might be some other shit uh, down the road. Um, not everybody thought that that was going to be a reality. Like teases happen all the time. I mean, look at look at uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender. <laughs> we got a post credits tease there with 
and we never got a second movie, it, it happens. And Super Mario Brothers, you know, Princess Daisy shows up and says, you'll never believe what happened. No, I won't, because we'll never get to it. <laughs> um, but by the time we get to 2013, though, uh, the Avengers dropped in 2012, and uh, by then we'd had, you know, solo movies to, like devoted to, you know, all the major players of the Avengers, uh, and then we had the Avengers proper, and it made all the money, um, there, thereby, like, crystallizing the, the MCU as a successful idea, um, and sure enough, you know, Warner Brothers are not completely stupid, of course, they, they saw what was happening, you know, on the other side of the fence, and they're like, hmm, maybe we should get some of that, so... Um, I'm sure the ball got rolling for Man of Steel um, pretty much as soon as it, they caught wind of the fact that the Avengers was going to happen. Um, so yeah, Man of Steel dropped in 2013, and uh, I did see it in the theater. Um, it's it has, it, it has all the things I, I mentioned about uh, Zack Snyder's quirks as a director. Like It, it has a very strong visual aesthetic. Um, there's some like norman rockwell-esque like small town america shots to it that like have all manner of filters put over them to make them feel like from a different time and world like from it's like the scenes in armageddon where they show the they show americana where it's like like is that from the 1950s <laughs> like I, I i've never been to that town but um it's a it's guilty of having some really cool ideas but doing nothing with them um, some of the ideas they had for Superman um, were genuinely interesting. They're they're all thoughts that you know any any comic fan or whatever has probably thought about from time to time, um, but it's the first time we'd ever had them confronted on screen. Uh, unfortunately, they never got around to it, and they still haven't, to be honest. Um, because one of the big memories I have of walking out of Man of Steel, and I think this is the only time I've ever thought this honestly, walking out of a movie was. Um, They'll do better next time. Um, and at that point in my life, like I said, the MCU was just, it just arrived, basically. So the idea of like a a sequel being a foregone conclusion was still a little bit of a new thing for everyone. Um, but it was it was fresh enough that it was in the back of my mind that, oh, we're, we're definitely going to get a sequel. Like with the way this one ended, of course we're getting a sequel and it'll probably be better because... Um, Spoiler alert, like, as far as I understand, and I'm not alone in thinking this, like, the whole idea of calling the film Man of Steel, other than, you know, being a nod to the Dark Knight, like, the unconventional, uh, super, like, superhero title for a movie, I'm calling the hero by, like, one of their pseudonyms, or, like, nicknames, rather, um, rather than their proper name, um, is that he's not Superman in the movie. Uh, he has the costume... Um, but he hasn't really had any interactions with the public, um, proper anyway. Um, his morality has yet to be defined within the film. Like the, I get what they're trying to do, where having having him spoil or kill Michael Shannon slash General Saad at the end. By the way, he also killed like a whole spaceship worth of Kryptonian fetuses and stuff before that. So it's like. I mean, I, I guess putting your hands on the guy's head and twisting is probably going to be more traumatic uh, than, you know, shooting laser beams at a spaceship. But that's neither here nor there. But uh, the whole point is that, you know, he killed the guy. So we get to see and uh, we get to see his the emotional fallout that comes with that. So we're supposed to see that, ah, this is Superman learning that that's not what he's about. Because the, the whole story of the movies is like uh, 
you have these abilities, what are you going to do with them? Um, and I do think it's interesting that Zack Snyder and his wife, by the way, who serves as producer on all of his films, as far as I know, um, I, he's been trying to get a Ayn Rand um, fountainhead uh, adaptation off the ground pretty much as soon as he's started making films. Uh, has yet to happen, may never happen, but um, I'm just throwing that out there because uh, I don't know if he if he leans into like objectivist thinking, um, but I do think it's worth noting that uh, he that's that's a unrealized passion project of his and it's public knowledge. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's interesting that someone with fascinated in that kind of material would would do a Superman movie. But yeah, the idea was that, um, and it needs to be said, like Man of Steel was supposed to have a direct sequel. Um, in the form of like a Man of Steel 2 or something, another Superman-centric chapter in the story. Um, I think the idea was that he would be Superman the next time we see him, but we never got Superman. <laughs> um, so yeah, Man of Steel came out in 2013. It was directed by Zack Snyder. And yeah, it, it's a it's a very confused, um, very very sloppy movie in a lot of ways. The editing is, is a big problem where... Uh, um, the, just the sequencing of events feels wrong where it keeps putting forth these questions about uh, Superman's morality and, and place in human society and whatnot but it, it keeps putting things out of sequence and um, not allowing us to, to, to really think about some of the questions that it's asking and then never bothers to answer any of them so not the best um, which brings us to Batman versus uh, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Um, and right out the gate, um, the title kind of spells out some of the problems uh, of, of a very problematic film, um, chief among which being the Dawn of Justice part, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. So I, I don't understand what the V is meant to represent, um, because in my mind, that's, that's gibberish. Like, I've, in all my years of watching boxing and MMA and stuff like that, I don't think I've ever seen a fight poster advertisement uh, that used a V in place of a versus. Um, so I don't know if it's meant to mean something else, but uh, as far as I know, it was a decision that uh, happened very hastily um, pretty much just before the movie came out, where it's like, oh, no, it's, it's not Batman versus Superman. It's Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. <laughs> so um, that felt like a knee-jerk reaction, and in fact, the whole movie feels like a knee-jerk reaction because, like I said, uh, the whole idea was that Man of Steel was going to get a direct sequel, also directed by Zack Snyder, mostly about Superman. But um, as far as I know, Man of Steel, you know, didn't do great critically, but it made quite a bit of money, thereby securing, you know, future projects in the yet-to-be-formed or realized uh, DCEU. But um, I'm guessing because uh, Disney and Marvel were kicking so much ass um, by the time we get to 2016, um, Warner Brothers... I decided to fast track the Justice League, um, and that's where the, the slapped on subtitle Dawn of Justice comes into play. Um, and not only that, they hit the panic button and then some um, by saying, hey, we're also going to put Batman in this film because Batman is a uh, proven box office, box office monster. Um, if you put Batman's name on it, they will come, regardless of whether it's good or not. Um, whereas Superman, traditionally, as far as I know, um, is a bit of a gamble. Um, I think Superman Returns underperformed and um, 
I don't know if Superman 3 did as well, but I'm pretty sure 4 flopped pretty badly. Uh, so aside from the, the Richard Donner films, the first two, um, Superman's had kind of a spotty track record. So it stands to reason that it's like, you know, let's just slap Batman in there and, you know, we'll, we'll guarantee that we'll make some money on this, um, which proved to be not the best of ideas. So my personal history with Batman v Superman uh, is that I had zero hype for it. <laughs> um, I remember seeing some of the teaser photos come out with uh, Ben Affleck, who plays Bruce Wayne slash Batman, um, wearing the the Frank Miller-inspired um, Dark Knight Returns um, power armor. Um, I thought that looked good, but then when I really thought about it, I was like, is it going to function well? Because it doesn't look like it. And if they want it to, it's probably going to be mostly CGI-assisted. Um, and it's probably not going to look great um, when it's in motion and whatnot. So I, was, I wasn't even cautiously optimistic. It was more just a novelty because um, I've certainly read The Dark Knight Returns. Um, and I will say this much, like the, the teaser photos of like the Batsuit and the Batmobile were somewhat promising. And honestly, I, I don't have much of an opinion on Ben Affleck as an actor. Uh, but, it, you know, it, he's he's enough of a selling point that's like, eh, I'm not worried about it. Like it, it wasn't like every other bat actor ever casted where everybody had was up in arms about it. I was like, Oh yeah, he, he might be able to do something with that. So I, I didn't really have many thoughts leading up, but I did see this one in the theater with my ex-girlfriend and she was there for the, uh, Henry Cavill who plays Clark Kent, Kal-El Superman. Um, she, she was there for his abs and, uh, Ben Affleck's, uh, CGI, uh, airbrushed uh, abs uh, much like uh, I think Nick Cage's Ghost Rider abs um, so she was happy in that category <laughs> but um, I I went to take a piss halfway through this movie I think it was during the party scene um, when Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent first meet each other in the film and I just remember having no reservations about it whatsoever normally I'm very cagey when it comes to taking a pee break during a theatrical experience like I I really don't like to miss parts of a movie I'm seeing in the theater especially because I get really anxious about stepping in front of people and stuff I don't like I don't like to get up basically um but this time around I was it was the middle chunk of the movie I was a little bit checked out and I think that describes two-thirds of this movie in a lot of ways um but my other memory of the experience was um God damn, the, the last 20, 25 minutes of this movie are obnoxiously loud. Um, as soon as Doomsday, every time Doomsday wigs out and starts throwing his like orange slash amber colored like energy bolts around, which I don't remember him ever doing the comic, but you know. Anyway, <laughs> every time he would do that, oh my God, the, the sound system would just go bonkers and my ears would be ringing and I was just like god damn it just kill him kill him dead because this is this is out of control <laughs> um and yeah it it's a it's a thoroughly confused like really emotionally empty movie that it I will say this much like as compared to something like Justice League which we'll get to um at least it it tries like at least at least every swing they make, it, it's a big whiff that makes a big nasty whoof. Um, whereas Justice League just feels like they're, it's so flat. Like it's it's Justice League is a as it stands right now, not the uh, soon to be released 
uh, release the Snyder cut, um, but the current cut of Justice League that we all we all have right now is it's a room temperature vanilla popsicle. Like it, it just it is to to quote Tom Hardy Venom. It, it it's a turd in the wind. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, Batman versus Superman the theater was obnoxiously loud and just like. It, it confusing at times um and boring at times and then there's a couple of home run moments and then you realize holy shit there's still a half an hour more of this movie and i, I don't think it's really going to pay off <laughs> um, but anyway uh, the basic plot breakdown of the movie uh so batman v superman dawn of justice came out 2016 like i said it, it was fast-tracked so re- keep in mind that um there was supposed to be a Man of Steel 2 preceding it, as far as I know. So the the plot follows directly from the conclusion of Man of Steel, um, wherein uh, Metropolis has been destroyed, um, and we see at the beginning of Batman v Superman that Bruce Wayne, Ben Affleck, um, was at ground zero, and um, a lot of people have been extremely critical of Zack Snyder's use of like 9-11 uh, imagery like analogous to 9-11 imagery in the destruction of metropolis in two different movies um we see that bruce wayne bears witness to the destruction of metropolis at the hands of both uh superman and general zod um and it plants the seeds for like a multi-year grudge wherein bruce wayne looks at this larger than life figure this um essentially like god among men um as a as someone to be suspicious of where the whole the whole plot of the movie is is about this question of can he be trusted should he be trusted and uh bruce wayne kind of allows that to poison his soul a little bit where he looks upon superman as um someone that has too much power to the point that there there's no possibility that they can be trusted because inevitably anyone with a we, we don't know the man's morals we don't know his beliefs um, and he's so goddamn powerful that he, he just absolutely can't be trusted. So um, thanks to the machinations of one Lex Luthor, uh, played by Jesse Eisenberg, um, he kind of creates a situation where Batman and Superman are set up to clash with one another, um, which ends up happening much earlier than, in the film than you would expect. Um, but at the same time, in terms of plot structure, um, there's only a few more bullet points that follow it, and it all happens like back to back to back to back, and it's like, oh, why did we put Batman versus Superman on the on the poster? Because that was such a small part of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, that's the basic plot outline. Um, I already kind of went into Zack Snyder's like themes and motifs, so I'm not gonna say much more about it, other than the fact that most of it's still present in this film. Although in terms of uh, aesthetics, I feel like he he took a bit of a step back from Man of Steel. Man of Steel is a fairly handsome movie for the most part, although um, in terms of cinematography, um, the use of like uh, use of CGI for virtually every action sequence, I know it's necessary, but it's very distracting because it doesn't mesh all that well um, with some of the like tooth and nail, just like hand-to-hand combat that goes on uh, to the point where it's like the choreography can't decide like okay every time these people touch each other they either go flying 
or they remain they remain completely sta- stationary so we can have a throwdown in a Denny's or an I, I think it was the IHOP. Yeah, we, we have an extended sequence of like multiple beats of choreography wherein instead of going flying clear across the town, um, we need to hang out in this IHOP for just a little while just so people can see how spacious and wondrous it is um, because the, pl- the product placement in the Smallville sequence is out of control. But um, another thing is the use of um, like snap zooms uh, where it's meant to look like almost like documentary footage. Um, but because it's done artificially, like I believe it's done with a digital intermediary, like in post, as opposed to done with the actual camera lensing, um, it comes across as more artificial rather than more, more organic, which is completely opposite of the point of employing that particular editing trick. But yeah, it, um, Batman versus Superman, like in terms of like, aesthetics it's a much darker film which is appropriate being as it's a batman v superman film um but sometimes the visuals are really muddy like i i own this film on 4k um and there's still times where i have to squint to see some of the details it's the bit rate's fine on the disc it's a handsome disc for sure um but there's some there's some weird um cinematographic or aesthetic choices made um largely in terms of like uh, uh, lighting and whatnot. Um, speaking of which, I'll just throw it out there. Uh, Patrick Totopoulos uh, did the uh, production design for this film. Um, I think Nathan Crowley worked on all three of the, the Nolan films, but the only reason I want to throw it out there is that Patrick Totopoulos, um, very, very, very good production designer, very wonderful artist in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, I have a personal history uh, because he, uh, he did the... Uh, 1998 Godzilla design which if you've seen what it looked like on paper it looks pretty fucking cool um and it is actually represented fairly well in the finished film in CGI um but goddamn I'll never forgive him for that because that 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 piece of shit was not Godzilla that that's what uh hardcore Godzilla fans that's what we call Gino uh, Godzilla in name only but Anyway, Patrick Totopoulos did the production design for the film, which would include, like, the bat suit, the Batmobile, the bat wing, all that business. Um, it's not his fault, but I just figured I'd give him credit. But it, it's not his fault, but one thing I noticed in one of the bigger sequences in this movie, and it, it is actually choreographed very well, and it's actually kind of a cool sequence for the most part, um, the Batmobile chase in, like, the middle of the film. Um, there's a weird... Um, choice made in the in the editing and the construction of the scene wherein the the headlights all the light blooms are blown the fuck out especially on the batmobile so literally every time a headlight like flashes in front of the camera like points into the lens uh you're blinded um you really can't see much um and in terms of like scene geography like getting a lay of the land like really learning like creating spatial awareness in regards to like where each car is in position in regards to each other uh, it robs you of that so it takes an otherwise pretty well constructed scene and um, confuses your brain a little bit and robs it of some of its impact and it's very it's kind of shocking coming from a guy like Zack Snyder who is so known for his action sequences and whatnot um but yeah, uh, a lot. There's a lot of carryover from Man of Steel. Like, in fact, the uh, Kryptonian scout ship or whatever that was uh, featured in Man of Steel is um, 
still crash landed in metropolis and they've built like a facility around it which i really like the design of that facility it it kind of reminded me like the incubation chamber for uh, mothra's egg in uh, some of the older godzilla films um and continuity like that you know for comic readers or like followers of comic book cinema and stuff you know you can't help but appreciate attention to detail like that like uh, again another uh, daikaiju reference um I always like that like the 90s Gamera movies uh, maintained quite a bit of continuity not just in terms of like characters and whatnot but also like like the state of the world where um, there's a single shot in Gamera 2 where they uh, pan over to Tokyo Tower and this is supposed to take place like a year um, after the events of Gamera Guardian of the Universe um, and it's just this one shot of Tokyo Tower under construction so it's just a reminder to the viewer that it's like, ah, this is a sequel. And yeah, it's only been a year, so we're not quite done fixing the mess that the monsters made last time out. Um, and this movie does have that. Um, and it does try to address some of the problems I said were present in Man of Steel. Unfortunately, it doesn't try hard enough. Um, because I would argue that we still don't even get a Superman in this movie. Um, honestly, like it, it's a weird thing that happens where we get to Superman dying in this film, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, uh, before I've even been allowed to form an emotional bond to him. Like, we don't really get a proper Superman, like the the Superman we all expect anyway, uh, until Justice League. And that's after he's died and come back to life. But yeah, up in, like, when he dies in Batman v Superman, it's like, okay I, I didn't really care about him nor was i really given the tools to care about him up into the up until this point in the movie so mm, that's it feels a little cart before horse if you ask me but um speaking of characterization though i should probably just uh talk about batman being as he's why we're all here today um so like i said ben affleck plays bruce wayne slash batman in this film um and in terms of uh, his cast, I'm not going to go over every character in detail, just the Batman, the Bat players. Um, it's just Batman and Alfred. Um, the rest of his support system is not present. We do get a Commissioner Gordon in Justice League, but we'll get to that. Um, Alfred is played by Jeremy Irons. And uh, it needs to be said, I think I think both guys do pretty well. Um, I'll focus on Ben Affleck first. But um, this particular characterization of Batman is... Uh, there's a weird choice made in regards to um, uh, story references and whatnot. So this movie, part of the marketing for it was leaning very heavily into uh, connections to The Dark Knight Returns, um, which is like one of three or four major Batman stories that even people who don't read comics know based on its legacy. Um, it's, it's just like one of the big ones. So like the killing joke is one that a lot of people who don't read comics know. Um, the Dark Knight Returns is another one. Um, if you're really, really into the Dark Knight and what inspired it, then the Long Halloween might be one that some people know, probably fewer. But um, And then, of course, Batman Year One, um, that's another big one. Um, most of these are Frank Miller stories, Dark Knight Returns being chief among them. Um, but one thing that was more covert, but not completely... <laughs> um, uh, in the marketing was uh, the presence of Doomsday, 
who, if I remember right, the marketing for this movie, they uh, they tripped over themselves pretty badly. Uh, they did some dumb shit. Um, and I don't know if this had to do with scheduling or, like, balancing the books or something, but somebody made the dumb fucking idea, <laughs> the dumb fucking choice to uh, reveal that Wonder Woman is in the film, um, in the trailers, uh, which I personally probably would have sat on. I think it would have carried more weight if she just appeared in the movie. Um, because we'd all know who it is. Like, you don't have to know anything about comics to, to know who Wonder Woman is. Um, and the other would be the inclusion of Doomsday in the marketing. Because if I remember right, there's a couple shots of him in maybe some of the post-release trailers or teasers. Um, and it's like, yeah, that, that Grey Ogre thing probably can't be anything other than Doomsday. And, you know, any dumb kid, like, can can Google, like, Superman Grey Ogre and find Doomsday and much like Bane in The Dark Knight Rises Doomsday is really known for doing exactly one thing in the Superman comics and that would be offing him <laughs> um, and yeah uh, including him in the marketing like anybody who knows anything about comics or has googled Doomsday has an idea of what we're going to do with the story especially when the the visual aesthetic of the promotional materials is so dour it's like you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens in this movie, especially since, you know, we're it's like we're we're trying to find a way to make you care about Superman, so we're going to kill him before before we've given you the tools to care about him. It's like maybe that'll work for some people. Like I said, the, the, I want to say Zack Snyder is kind of banking on people to approach things with their heart, not with their head. Uh so what I was getting at with the Dark Knight Returns is a uh, the whole idea of that story, which actually doesn't connect to this movie story very much at all, other than some um, visual references in the form of a few shots. Like, there's a shot of him doing, like, a, a downward, it's almost like a dab or, like, a, a downward-pointing Hulk Hogan arm pose <laughs> uh, with a th lightning bolt behind him. And then, of course, the design of the bat suit with the short ears and making him thick, as the kids like to call it. And then, of course, the power armor and stuff. And, and the fact that he throws down with Superman. Um, other than those references, like, very few of the events um, bear resemblance to Dark Knight Returns. I guess you could say, like, um, like all of the uh, CNN and, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson, like, talking heads that are rambling throughout the film is also an homage to Frank Miller's story presentation. Because there's quite a bit of that in his Dark Knight Returns stories. But... Um, the idea is that this is supposed to be a older, more beat-down Batman. Like, he has a lot more miles on him than any other version of the character we've seen at this point. Um, as evidenced by the fact that um, he no longer lives in Wayne Manor. It's it's decrepit, it's disheveled. Um, he lives in, like, a lake house some distance away from it, probably because of emotional problems, where it's like he can't bear the bear the weight of it any longer. Um there's also a visual reference to a uh, a Robin suit that's been uh, vandalized and torn apart by the Joker, presumably being it has being as it has neon paint on it saying "ha ha ha," um, and we're we're meant to believe that uh, the Joker presumably has been dealt with or is no longer an issue. So either he's secure in Arkham or dead, um, and there was a Robin, but no longer. Uh, being like it's implied that he's been killed by the Joker 
um, but the word Joker and Robin are never used in the film. Um, but the idea is this is supposed to be a pitch black Batman who's kind of uh, take take where uh, Christian Bale's take on the character was in The Dark Knight Rises at the beginning of the film. Um, take that and then take it a few steps further where it's like he's he's not he's not curling up and waiting to die, but his uh, outlook on humanity is has soured to the point that uh, he's all too aware of the fact that, you know, 20 years of punching people has gotten him nothing but grief and criminality still exists in the world uh, so he's jaded and I, I like what ben affleck does with it i like i actually like his performance i like that he's a drunk <laughs> um which um i you know i hope his recovery is going well because as far as i know ben affleck has had substance abuse problems recently um but yeah he, he's he's drunk um alfred is constantly you know, trying to urge him to get his shit together, put the bottle down and, you know, find himself a gal or something uh, to straighten himself out. But uh, he he's still committed to Batmaning. And his approach has taken a turn, though, uh, in the wake of Superman's arrival, where um, basically he's realized that punching criminals on the street is has never solved anything other than give him grief. Um but he's kind of targeted all of his, all of his issues, all all of his problems. Um, he's kind of transposed all of them onto Superman as, uh, like a readily identifiable goal, where it's like, ah, there's this global threat in the form of this Superman that only I have the tools to address. So if I can, if I can like take care of the Superman, then I can I can somehow make it all count for something, like. All, all those years of crime fighting didn't really mean much, but if I can get rid of Superman, I can make it count for something. Um, but yeah, I, he, I like that he he's kind of pissed off and he's tired throughout most of the movie. Um, I It is a little weird every time you see Batman kill people in a movie. And uh, I was nicknaming his Batman after I saw the movie in the theater, uh, Murder, Bat, Murder Batman because he seems to revel in killing people in this film. It's not like Tim Burton's take on the character where, you know, he'd kill people from time to time. And occasionally he'd smile about it too. Like when, when he knocks the circus strong man down that hole and blows him up with the dynamite, eh, he had fun with that. But, but Ben Affleck's Batman has, those machine guns aren't there to shoot holes in, uh, in like doors to like, in uh, Batman 89, that's that scene where the machine guns come out of the Batmobile and he uses them to, like, basically open a door. He doesn't shoot people in the noggin with them. But uh, Ben Affleck's Batman, yeah, he's got, like, missiles and guns on the Batmobiles explicitly, expressly for the purpose of eliminating people. Um, and if you're watching the extended edition, I'm pretty sure he tears a guy's nuts off. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he's he's taken things to another level. Um, I'm... I disagree with that. I think that was a strange approach to things. I think it would have been fine just to have him be more brutal. Um, but just seeing machine guns mounted on the Batmobile in 2016 felt somehow wrong. I mean, it's it's cool, but any Batman and guns just don't go together. <laughs> like, like it, it just doesn't go together. In fact, I've I've enjoyed previous iterations of the character where uh, he has moments where he handles a gun and you can tell he didn't like it. Like he really, 
had problems with that. Like I, rem- I, I remember the pilot of Batman Beyond, uh, the cartoon. Um, there's his last outing as Batman, and uh, he has like a heart condition at the time and he ends up picking up a handgun and holding it up to someone's face as a last ditch effort to save the day because his body's failing him and uh he doesn't shoot the guy and the guy runs off but um when he when he's left alone he's still holding that pistol he like drops it and he just looks like utterly disgusted with himself and sure enough he retires that night and in my mind that's that's batman's stance on guns but you know if you want a cool action scene involving blowing up trucks and stuff, maybe, maybe you need to have some guns on your Batmobile. I, I, I disagree, but that's just me. But in terms of like the bat suit and stuff, like I said, um, is an interesting, uh, visual element, uh, to casting Ben Affleck in the form of his stature. Um, Ben Affleck is very tall for an actor anyway. Uh, he's probably like six, three, um, and next to Henry Cavill, he is he's the larger human being, <laughs> um, which is very strange uh, because traditionally in the comics and in any other media, um, Superman is usually positioned as like, you know, the tallest of, of the trinity of, of DC characters. That would be Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman, uh, although sometimes artists render Wonder Woman as being larger than the other two being as, you know, Amazon. Uh, but it's unusual to have Batman be the bigger of the two of them. Um, and it actually points to a theme that I've, I've heard explored uh, on like other podcasts and other media outlets, and that would be um, this idea of like a, a person who represents the pinnacle of human uh, achievement, uh, both in terms of like finances and physicality, because Batman's supposed to be like, like, pretty much captain america level strong like he's supposed to be as as good as a human can be in terms of physicality so you have this guy who based on just appearances looks superior um and then you put him up against somebody who just by their dna just by being kryptonian um without putting in any time at the gym without having any family legacy or angst or anything like that is just better um that's a concept that I do find interesting because it, it lends it gives that conflict yet another layer where it's like they're they have different ideologies, but now you have a situation where there's almost an element of like jealousy or like looking at the world as being somehow unfair. Where it's like you 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 look like a human, you live on the same planet as me, and yet just by existing you have infinitely more than I could ever hope to have. Um and a lot of that gets transposed onto uh, Lex Luthor as opposed to Batman, but um, it's a theme that I think is interesting. And they do they do futz with it a little bit, like they do they do mess around with it a bit in Batman v Superman. But like I said, most of it's um, most of it's placed on Lex Luthor and his particular beef with Superman, which I I can't get into. Like I said, I'm just gonna focus on the Batman shit, but. Um, yeah, the bat suit, like I said, is largely designed to look like have the same silhouette and structure as like uh, the Dark Knight Returns suit. So it's it's uh, back to being leathery in appearance as opposed to more armored like the uh, the Nolan version was. Um, I like the short ears um, and and the thickness is uh, it's it's certainly a novelty at the time of its release for sure because um, again this is this is a different look we've had to the Batman and. Uh, in terms of like 
his placement in scenes like it does make him stand out quite a bit because he's he looks like a he looks <laughs> he looks like a gorilla with a cape <laughs> i'm like not gonna lie he's, he's like beefy to the point that's like nothing that big should move that fast <laughs> Um, and it, it's kind of neat and we do get to see like they do play around with this theme that um, you know this is Batman pushed even further into the darkness so um, they do a lot of things like um, especially towards the end when he's wearing the power armor and stuff they play around with this idea of making him uh, de-evolve de like being subhuman at that point so like put in putting on the armor in taking up arms against the Superman who shows up you know, just in the super suit with a cape, you know, essentially naked because um, skin tight and stuff. You, in showing up with the suit of armor and stuff, he's like stripped of himself of his humanity to like do battle with this thing that he thinks of as a monster when himself, when in fact he himself became the monster. It's, it's all pretty obvious theming and stuff. But um, I mean, they do some stuff like early in the movie where. Uh, the way he stalks around um, that tenement building uh, the first time we see him in the bat suit in the movie where he literally is like perched up in the corner of the ceiling like a bat and then swings around on the ceiling like like a gorilla on a swing set <laughs> or something like on a playground equipment set um, it's all like more animalistic more predatory than we usually see Batman because like the Nolan era the character aside from like Batman Begins made him seem very much like a dude in a suit um but this one's like kind of otherworldly in some ways um but uh one thing that needs to be talked about is the uh the warehouse scene which which uh some people have been taking to calling like the the arkham asylum scene <laughs> uh because uh yeah in terms of like choreography and like construction of the scene uh it really does feel like a scene taken straight from the arkham asylum uh, series of game or the the Arkham series of games because uh, we get to see Batman like bust out all these tricks that um, and in rapid succession in a way that we've never seen on film uh, and it's it's an expertly crafted action scene uh, it has a lot of impact um, you your eye is never having trouble following the movements and, and the beats of the choreography um, it's pretty cleverly constructed too where we get to see batman make use of all manner of tools like he has alfred like remote control the batwing uh, he has gadgets to disable people's guns which you know that should be something that batman always has on hand because that's like like i said I ideally that's something batman would never turn on another person sometimes he does in these movies but um eliminating the weapons from the room is certainly something we should be accustomed to see batman do and then we get to see some like nods to like Batman eighty nine, where like he shoots his grappling gun into someone and uses it. He like weaponizes it as opposed to uses it as a form of transportation. Um, and yeah, uh, the, it needs to be said the impact of some of these shots is pretty fucking brutal. <laughs> like uh, one of the trailer shots is him uh, f forcing someone to do a face plant. That I I know how they did it. Uh, they used a like a green screen replaced. Uh, uh, crash mat uh, so basically there was a mat there but it was green screened out in post-production um, but when you see it on film like especially in motion you really don't see the seam lines there um, and it really just looks like th that man's face just slammed into the ground and no nobody's neck is meant to bend that way <laughs> um, and it's pretty fucking great um, that whole sequence is great unfortunately its placement in the film is god-awful 
um, because directly preceding that we get the titular Batman v Superman uh, sequence, um, which is not good. <laughs> and back to back, we get the thing that the entire movie is named after, and then something better than it, <laughs> like immediately following it. Oh yeah, and then Doomsday immediately following that. So you have this, you have the the best action scene in the movie sandwiched between two kind of letdowns, but there's zero breathing room in between. Uh, and it's just horribly sequenced. Um, but yeah, speaking of the, the Batman v Superman sequence, um, wow, it is clumsy. Like it, it's kind of remarkable actually how this is exact. This is the, this is what your movie's titled after. <laughs> like, if you're going to get exactly one thing right with your movie, it should be that. Like, like all all of your resources should have gone towards getting this right. Like, if we need to do research, reshoots, if we need to call the storyboard artists back and get them to do another draft on it, you got to do it because that's what the people showed up for. Um, and, yeah, it's a really clunky sequence. It's really... It's very brief, actually. At least it feels like it. It's stretched out by, um, you know, people speechifying and stuff. But um, because he's wearing the armor, which I believe was a physical prop, um, which, you know, is definitely CGI-assisted whenever he has to do anything remotely physical because he couldn't fucking move in that thing. Um, And even with the CGI assistance, like, the way he throws his punches, like, the speed of his arms, like, outstretching and retracting is so goddamn slow that's like i can tell that doesn't hurt <laughs> like like go ahead ben affleck you you do that to me head on and i'll you know it'll hurt but it's not gonna lay me out or anything i don't have to be superman but yeah it it's not very creative in how it's structured um one of the cardinal sins would be batman is always portrayed as being the man with the plan like it like that's always the joke is that um, any any my dad could beat up your dad argument involving Batman. Batman wins if he gets time to plan. Like that that's just the rule. That's the playground rule. If if you put Batman in there with anyone and you give him adequate time to prepare, he wins. Um, in this case, he's the one that puts up the bat signal. He's the one that initiates the fight. You would think that he's ready for it. He is ill prepared for this fight, and his whole plan is centered around throwing two smoke grenades at Superman that weaken him and then stabbing him with a spear which he positioned several hundred feet away from himself so that that's it like other than that he has a couple of traps set up outside neither of which are very effective and then the fight goes to the roof of a building that there's no way he could have anticipated he would have been taken to Um, and then the spear is in the basement um He's shown as being short-sighted and ill-prepared, which is the complete opposite of what you would expect from Batman. And yeah, it's just a hell of a letdown of a sequence. Um, it's slow. It's clunky. It's not well thought out. Um, and yeah, it just doesn't have any saving graces. Even the soundtrack completely portrays the movie at that point because it's trying so hard to make it feel like epic, but it just comes across as overwrought and just reaching way too far. And then, of course, I'm not even going to go into it but the the whole martha thing to end the fight is is silly (laughs) i mean i i get what they're doing like it 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 makes sense i guess on a scripting level and i do like the idea of 
the wrap up to the fight, Batman walks away and says, Martha's not going to die tonight. Like that is kind of cute because it's the whole idea is that this is Bruce Wayne kind of like getting a kind of redemption, like being able to save someone's mother named Martha, but not his own. It's like came 30 years too later, whatever, but he finally got that little bit of light back in his soul. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a big letdown. Um, the other the other sequence, the other bat sequence that's worth noting, I guess, is the nightmare. Um, Batman has a couple of nightmares in this movie back to back, such that it's actually difficult. Um, actually, I'm a little confused now because I always thought that um, the nightmare he has is a nightmare, but then when he encounters the Flash, it's like a time traveling Flash who's warning him that. Um, uh, don't let Lois die because if she dies, Superman's going to kill us all. And then he's like, oh, wait, I'm too early. You don't know what I'm talking about. Bye. And then immediately after that, though, Bruce Wayne wakes up. Um, he, so he has two dreams back to back. And it's like, are you like narcoleptic or something? Like, was that a dream within a dream? Or I don't know what I just saw, but that's how I interpret it anyway. But yeah, the nightmare sequence is Batman with guns um, in a sequence that... Uh, teases some stuff that I don't think we'll ever see, honestly. Um, so it's this nightmare sequence wherein like a f fascist Superman has joined forces with Darkseid, who uh, until we get the Snyder cut of Justice League, has no presence in uh, in the DCEU. Um, but we see it based on like the Omega burn, the Omega symbol burnt into the ground um, in this apocalyptic vision that uh dark sides involved somehow and of course the parademons and whatnot but yeah it's a bunch of like fascist stormtroopers and superman and some parademons uh attack batman and a bunch of like rebels in the desert and we get this really ambitious uh 360 degree camera movement sequence where it's supposed i think it's artificially stitched together it could have been shot in one take but basically it's just batman laying into a bunch of people shooting a bunch of people it's kind of cool looking uh, the choreography is a little bit breezy, like um, some of the hits lack impact, and you can tell that a lot of CGI was kind of used to um, stitch things together, because there's a lot of props that are being thrown around that I don't believe were actually there. It was just everybody kind of doing the motions and then falling down on cue and stuff. Um, it's a very The frame is very cluttered, so like the whole time I'm trying to watch what Batman's doing, but I don't think that's what you're supposed to be doing, because... Like I said, the frame is just filled with action. Um, it's kind of cool. Then we get the nightmare scene where uh, Superman tears out his heart. <laughs> and then he wakes up. But, uh, yeah. Um, I kind of like Batman in this movie. Uh, I don't like the movie, though. Especially since uh, by the time we get to the end, and uh, we have our throwdown with Doomsday, um, as well as that uh, now legendary music cue wherein Wonder Woman shows up. Um, and that crazy cello starts playing. Oh, by the way, the score was done by Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL, um, who, as far as I know, has been working for a while um, in the movie industry. Like, but kind of burst onto the scene with the uh, the Mad Max Fury Road score. Um, he's kind of been repeating himself a little bit. Like you, you can kind of he has a sound, um, which is pretty sure how he gets his gigs. But. Um, his uh, his his Batman theme is not bad. It's like 
it's like a it's a driving theme that plays much better over the Batmobile than like his other Batmaning and stuff. Um, but one thing I noticed, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if like Zack Snyder uh, requested this uh, because he seems to much like a David Fincher uh, seems to like Trent Reznor slash like Nine Inch Nails. Um, I think it was uh, had had like a hole. Um, there, there's a chunk of Batman's theme music in Batman v Superman that sounds very similar to Head Like a Hole. And I was like, that's strange. I, I don't hate it, <laughs> but I, I noticed it if that's what the reference was supposed to be. Um, but yeah, the whole thing I was getting at, though, with the Doomsday sequence is that Batman is useless <laughs> in the Doomsday sequence. <laughs> like, he, he, he kind of goads Doomsday into uh, relocating uh, to the deserted pier because every location that doomsday appears in is deserted we make sure to include that in the incidental dialogue um because there was severe critical backlash to the metropolis destruction scene uh for man of steel so in this time this time around they're like okay we're just gonna make sure everyone watching the movie knows that there are no civilians around they're gonna get killed um but yeah uh, it's the three biggest heroes in the dc universe uh, against this doomsday character who is in this film, um, derived from General Zod, um, and they make no use of that in terms of characterization. He is he is just a confused brute that gets more confused and more angry as the fight goes on. Like it kind of would have been cool if like he had specific beef with Superman, but no, he's just a big, loud, angry monster. Um, that, by the way, is is too goddamn big. Doomsday is so fucking big in this movie that he can hold, like, Superman around the torso in one hand. And for me, like, just on an aesthetic level, that just looks wrong. Because in terms of interacting with the actors, it's just, like, he's he's too large. Like, it doesn't lend itself well to doing any sort of complex choreography with the heroes. Um, just a weird choice. Um, I don't know why they did that. But, yeah, Batman's here. And he does nothing. <laughs> uh, he has a grenade launcher with one more gas grenade and one more kryptonite gas grenade in it. And he spends the entire fight just running away, hoping hoping and praying that he's not going to die while the other two, you know, lay into doomsday. And then he shows up at the very end to help with one of the killing blows. But it's kind of sad that it's like, wow, you have like $200 million backing you and all the best artists in the world and you couldn't think of anything else to do with Batman? <laughs> Jeez. But I guess that's why we had the warehouse sequence. It was just so we could we could show Batman do cool stuff. Um, just remind the viewer that it's like we swear he does cool stuff. Just not at the end of the movie. <laughs> just like in the sequence immediately before the end of the movie. That's way better than the end of the movie. Um needs to be said, during the warehouse sequence, um I forget the character's name, but um it's the KG Beast. Uh, is the guy who kidnaps Martha, which, if you ask me, is a bit of a waste. Because um, if you've listened to the previous episode um, where we talked about like um, adaptations we'd like to see committed to film someday, I actually brought up the uh, the uh, the KG Beast story arc, uh, his first appearance of the Batman comics, as something I wouldn't mind seeing realized on film. Um, but now he's dead <laughs> in the DCEU, so can't do that. But you know. Maybe someday. Maybe someday we can get an equivalent. Um, but other than that, I, I don't think we have any other members of the Bat, Bat family. Like I said, Jeremy Irons is here. 
I liked his take on Alfred. Um, he's cattier than ever. Um, it's not it's not like Michael Caine kind of catty. It's like he's aggressively catty, <laughs> where it's like you can tell that they've been at it too long. And Alfred, I wouldn't even be surprised if this particular Alfred was just kind of like looking for a way out. Like he's just like, you know, it's kind of been cool like raising you and like taking care of you and like making sure you're not a complete shithead. But I got other shit to do, man. I got I got other things I'd like to see happen before the end of my days. Um, but yeah, they have a they have a good routine going on between the two of them. He's constantly there to question Bruce. Like mostly, that's what he's there to do is question Bruce and and his motivations and uh, take him down a peg every once in a while. I mean, the Bruce Wayne in this movie is a force of nature until the very end, where he kind of gets his head screwed on right um and he's never gonna change his thinking until until superman's out of the picture but um they they have an interesting dynamic um i must say uh my favorite line that ben affleck has in this movie um this is not a super quotable film but one there's a scene where he's pretending to be drunk and uh (laughs) uh tal okamoto is here um my theory is she was she plays mercy graves uh, who, as far as I know, she in, she originated on the Superman animated series, which I grew up watching. Same with the Batman animated series, and uh, Mercy was uh, she was like Lex Luthor's valet or like chauffeur, but also bodyguard. So she like drove around. She like drove him around town and also beat all sorts of ass if it if it called for it. Um, Tal Okamoto, uh, most of you will probably recognize from. Uh, James Mangold's uh, The Wolverine, uh, the one that takes place in Japan. And uh, I want to say she got this gig uh, because she's a model and uh, they needed a trailer shot wherein she strutted down a hallway. Because there's there's one shot in this movie where um, she's like marching with a couple of soldiers, like pushing uh, General Zod's body towards Lex Luthor, who's like eagerly anticipating the arrival of the corpse. And it's just this one shot of her strutting down this hallway, and she she is pounding that she is pounding that runway, <laughs> like she got everything swaying. And it's like I'm pretty sure that's entirely how she got this gig. It's just because she has that background, she can pull that off. But other than that, she has no characterization. She's just fucking here, and then she gets blown up. Jimmy Olsen's in this movie too. He gets shot. So <laughs> so I don't know what we're doing. Uh, in terms of like paying homage to the characters other than uh, rubbing out a lot of the ones that you know some of the hardcore fans would actually care about so Jimmy dead Mercy dead <laughs> but um, yeah the the line that I was referencing though um, it happens in a scene where Tal Okamoto she uh, finds him in the basement and he very quickly pretends to be drunk and she's like he asks like where's the restroom and she's like oh it's over there and and as she's walking away you know paying him no mind because she's like oh he's drunk he doesn't know anywhere he just kind of like puts his hand up and he's like i like those shoes <laughs> he's like i like those shoes and it's like his delivery is kind of perfect and it it worked out well it was very charming it's like one of his only charming moments in the movie um other than his uh crossfit sequence before he does battle with the bat um and we get to see those glorious CGI airbrushed abs because Ben Affleck, I know you're a big guy, but I, I don't think you're cut. Like, I don't think that's in you. Um, not since the town, anyway, or uh, Argo. 
<laughs> but anyway, uh, that's largely what I had to say about Batman v Superman. Uh, there's so much more, but for now, um, just keep it focused on the bat. Um, which brings us to uh, Suicide Squad. Uh, so Suicide Squad was kind of a a pit stop in a in the DC EU. Uh, so it came out the same year, uh, 2016, uh, as Batman v Superman. Um, it was directed by David Ayer. Um, I'm not I'm not going to talk about this movie in detail. I I refuse. Um, the only reason I want to bring it up is just because uh, Ben Affleck's Batman is featured in a couple of scenes in it. Um, he has two scenes as Batman, a three if you include a dream sequence, and then uh, he's in the post credits as Bruce Wayne. Um, so the basic rundown of Suicide Squad is it's you know it's a ragtag group of uh, low-level supervillains that are uh, pulled out of prison and repurposed as like a government hit squad. Uh, this movie is trash. <laughs> um, this movie has a uh, checkered production history, um, much like Batman versus Superman, and much like Justice League. Uh, so the DCEU really had problems coming out the gate. Uh, for several years up until Wonder Woman basically in 2017 um, it needs to be said the dawn of justice aspect of uh, Batman v Superman I somehow it it somehow it didn't cross my mind while I was rambling but um, <clears throat> there, there are multiple scenes in that film where we essentially get to watch teaser trailers things that a few years ago, like a few years prior to the release of the movie, probably would have been considered viral teasers. Um, things that would have been put up on YouTube for people to figure out what it was and, you know, would generate buzz. Um, for whatever reason, they decided to shoehorn it into the runtime of the film. And we literally get to watch um, Batman and Wonder Woman watch teaser trailers for upcoming DC <laughs> DC films. Um, it's pretty fucking dumb. Oh, and it's a waste of everyone's time, especially when the debut of the uh, the Wonder Woman theme music, which I, I mentioned um, most people think of as debuting during the Doomsday fight. We f hear the first chords of it while she's watching a uh, a teaser trailer, essentially, for Aquaman and Cyborg, which really muddles the... the muddles the, the the heart and soul of that piece of music where it's like hang on the first time i heard that melody uh she was involved in the scene but two other characters were as well is it her theme or is it like the theme of the justice league now i'm really confused <laughs> like is this the justice league assemble theme or is this the theme of wonder woman it's since gone on to officially be her theme music being as it's been in multiple movies now but just wanted to throw that out there anyway Suicide Squad is an absolute mess. As far as I've heard, um, there are th at least three different finished cuts of the film that exist. Um, the theatrical edition of which was uh, apparently edited by uh, some sort of group, a, uh, a, a house that was uh, contracted to do trailers, largely. Um, and it, it shows <laughs> the finished film was a complete fucking mess. Um, the the over-reliance on uh, licensed music is maddening. Um, there's so many scenes that uh, they just pick what whatever song we have in the Warner Brothers catalog um, that 
has lyrics that pertain to whatever setting or or event uh, is happening on screen right now and it's so amateurish and just emotionally hollow that it comes across as childish and dumb um it got it got bad enough like upon most recently rewatching it like it it was driving me nuts because uh all signs point to this being like uh warner brothers like hitting the panic button yet again um in response to the guardians of the galaxy uh in response to the success of that film um because it's you know it, it has that like jukebox feel to it only difference is guardians of the galaxy was directed by james gunn and all the songs featured in those films feel like very personal choices it's very cohesive like it, it feels like it, it came from somebody a single creative guiding hand um suicide squad is just like the fuck like none of this goes together <laughs> like like it, it's just throwing shit at the wall until it sticks and hoping it sticks and none of it does um and it gets bad to the point that they even use um was it spirit in the sky it's one of the most readily identifiable songs from the guardians of the galaxy soundtrack it's like uh a little on the nose guys um and it just gets dumber and weirder from there because the the cast of characters that they assemble for the film uh, i'm not even going to bother to run down most of them other than the fact that you know we have joker uh, jared leto and harley quinn um margot roby um and killer croc and deadshot we have we have major players from batman's rogues gallery in this film um, which is largely why i'm talking about it but i'm not going to go into too much detail but like during their character introductions most of the people get uh freeze frame slides introducing them that are i've always said anytime you do that in a movie you're like taking something away from it in some way you're cheapening it um but not everyone gets one um so right off the bat it's like okay that's not very cohesive you're if you're if you're gonna have a pattern you should probably stick to it but a huge problem with it is that the the cast of characters that that make up the suicide squad um, and by the way they're contracted to do a rescue mission bunch of killers are, are assigned to do a rescue mission um the ultimate villain of the film is a supernatural entity that you know is like a world world level threat like like world ending level threat <laughs> um so you're telling me that deadshot who shoots things and harley quinn who hits things with a bat um in high heels because that's what you want to take into battle um you're telling me that they're they're the right people for the job <laughs> it just doesn't match up well i feel like a tooth and nail opponent would have been proper for a tooth and nail monster kind of like you know you're 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 not matching your heroes well to your to your villain um but yeah the the movie is riddled absolutely riddled with problems um there's a lot of um a lot of it, I want to say, is connected to just David Ayer. I, I feel like a lot of us were really enthusiastic about him as a director um, following Fury. Um, U571's not a bad film. I've heard End of Watch is good, but I've also talked to some friends of mine who don't think that's true. <laughs> um, but David Ayer has developed some tendencies that I feel like he's starting to be like exposed as just not being as talented as maybe we all hoped he was. Because uh, Fury, I th I think everybody agrees is pretty good, but I don't know. He like his aesthetic, like he has this like borderline obsession with uh, like the L.A. gang scene. Like it's I don't know if it's derived from cartels or or what, but like 
everybody's covered in tattoos and jewelry everybody accessorizes in his movies like his aesthetic is extraordinarily loud and it works sometimes for sure like suicide squad has a look to it for sure like i can tell that much had some love and thought put into it but um it's it's something he's done a few too many times at this point to the point that's like you got any other tricks in there bud um but then there's this weird like um military aspect of the film i know he's like ex uh, navy but uh, much like man of steel which had a uh, the the military was in bed with that production for sure like uh christopher maloney i believe uh, he plays like the 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 voice of the people like he, he's like the military connection to superman who are instrumental in saving the day by the way uh, the military is made to look very competent and and good in man of steel uh, they're a non-factor in Batman v Superman, but in Suicide Squad, there's this weird thread going on in the background where uh, there's a lot of scenes of like after the city's been evacuated, of like military personnel like attending to the refugees and stuff. Um, and then there was a very, very, very silly um, creative decision made to have not just the Suicide Squad insert into the into the city uh, to save Amanda Waller, who by the way, Viola Davis is the saving grace of the film. Um, that was pitch perfect casting um manda waller played by viola davis is doing it right um but what i'm talking about is they there's a team of navy seals who are in the background of every scene that the suicide squad is in except for the finale um to the point that's like why like why can't the seals do it (laughs) like like they're better they're probably better equipped to handle the situation than any of these people that you recruited to do this dirty job um but they're they're ever present they're always there scott eastwood is in the movie i I defy you to notice him (laughs) he's just there and i don't have a problem with joel kinnaman but um it it's very it's very odd that like so much of the movie like the action sequence involve uh men with rifles shooting putty patrol people it's like if if you're gonna make a superhero movie make a superhero movie Um, Because this feels more like a paramilitary action film that I guess it's a little bit of a nod to like the Dirty Dozen or something, but make it one thing or the other. Like it's very confused and it's, I I think I've used that in reference to every movie I've talked about today. (laughs) Um, It's a very confused production. Apparently David Ayer has been calling for uh, a release the air cut for Suicide Squad because supposedly the film was essentially taken out of his hands like i said it was edited by not only him but at least two other groups um and it's highly debatable as to whether or not we got his cut of it um and it's it's kind of common knowledge at this point that most of jared leto's performance ended up on the cutting room floor Uh, he's been very public about being disappointed with that i seriously doubt it's worth our time anyway um but the product that we got is it's it's got problems (laughs) it's it's all over the place it's largely devoid of entertainment um i don't know maybe the intention was to make something that wasn't funny wasn't charming because it's not as as it stands but so many of the like the music cues and stuff feel like they're trying to make it a a happier more friendly story Uh, again probably because guardians of the galaxy has a similar idea like a bunch of misfits saving the saving the universe and whatnot but i i I don't know i don't know what to make of it but 
Um, in terms of Batman's involvement, Ben Affleck is his performance um, is more akin to what he was doing at the end of Batman v Superman, where he's he's lightened up quite a bit. Um, he was humbled by the death of Superman, and the whole idea of his journey uh, by the end of that film is that he um, the uh, the nightmare and like the vision that he had and uh, some of the warnings imparted to him from uh, Lex Luthor uh, at the end of the film. Uh, has given him cause to believe that there's there's something really really bad looming on the horizon, and now that Superman's gone, we need to be ready for it. Um, so he needs to form the Avengers. I mean, the Justice League. Um, so Wonder Woman is the first step towards that goal, and then all the teaser trailers for the other heroes movies that we'll never get, uh, aside from Aquaman and maybe Flash. Um, Cyborg's not getting a movie. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, uh, the idea is to unite all the forces. And so that's kind of where he's at is he's, he's, he has a new mission and it doesn't involve killing someone. It involves making friends so he can kill someone else who has yet to appear. (laughs) So, um, in this film, uh, he shows up initially in a uh, flashback sequence to the arrest of Deadshot, Will Smith. Um, Deadshot's characterization in this is very, very different, um, from what I'm used to in the comics. Um, I haven't read Suicide Squad, uh, though my my exposure to Deadshot mostly comes from Gail Simone's Secret Six, which is an excellent book, which I would love to see adapted to film someday. Um, but I'm used to Deadshot kind of having a bit of a dead wish, uh, death wish rather, and uh, being kind of very, very, very cavalier. Um, in this, he's he's more Will Smith. He has more heart, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was Will Smith making some demands because. As far as I know, Will Smith, he's like Tom Cruise. He doesn't like to look bad on film. He doesn't like to be the bad guy. He likes people to like him. Um, But yeah, uh, he's hanging out with his daughter, and uh, Batman descends from on high and then uh, smacks him around a bit and then arrests him. And uh, Deadshot is arrested because his daughter steps in front of him and says, hey, like, don't shoot people in front of me. I'm your daughter. I, I don't even know if Ben Affleck was on set with Will Smith. It the way this is shot, it's so, it's so snap, it's so quick um, that it really could have been anyone wearing a bat suit. And we get like one or two close-ups of Ben Affleck in the in the bat suit, but uh, those easily could have been done on a green screen uh, without Will Smith opposite him. Um, but it's it's a blink, it's almost blinking. You'll miss it. It's so brief. Um, but it takes place in Gotham City, and this is supposed to, I think, happen after Superman's passing. So this is like uh, Batman when he's taking a chill pill, because uh, the Batman from Batman v Superman probably would have tore his nuts off in front of his daughter. <laughs> um, uh, the other scene he's in is the arrest of uh, Harley Quinn and the disappearance of the Joker. Uh, so it's the the happy couple, <laughs> uh, happy with quotation marks. Um zipping down the street in a hot rod and then a uh, Batman does the very Batman thing of uh, landing on the roof of the car and uh, causing it to crash. And then uh, we get a fun moment where uh, he dives down into the water to rescue them. Uh, Joker's disappeared. Um, but Harley Quinn wakes up underwater and takes a swipe at him with like a knife and he socks her in the fucking face to, to knock her out. And then he has to uh, give her a mouth to mouth to resuscitate her. Uh, when he's brought her to dry land and then he takes her into custody it's very brief um 
And this time, I think Ben Affleck was actually on set with Margot Robbie. Um, you know, if you're going to smooch somebody on camera, that's generally something you want to show up for, especially if it's Margot Robbie. Um, and then the last scene he's in is with Amanda Waller. So we do get a scene of Ben Affleck and Viola Davis working opposite each other. Um, not that bad of a pairing, honestly. Like, I mean, she's a very talented actress, especially in this particular kind of role. Like, Amanda Waller is, is characterized in the comics as being the the motherfucker of all motherfuckers. <laughs> um, and yeah, she, she plays that. Um, she inarguably is probably the best part of this film. Um, I really wish the rest of the movie constructed around her was better. Um, and, you know, I... I haven't checked, but if uh, if she's involved in James Gunn's The Suicide Squad, I think that would be I think that would be just fine. But anyway, he basically just uh, twists her arm a bit for some uh, information about like recruiting other metahumans um, in DC Comics. That's you know super super people basically. Um, I it's implied that she knows who he is at the end of the scene she says like you need to stop working nights and he's like uh, i'm just gonna keep walking <laughs> um but yeah it's a nothing little scene but uh, i think i said enough about suicide squad um i probably said too much in fact but it, it's a movie that has some serious problems um most of which are the editing like it, it's very poorly put together um, like I said, it's actually kind of handsome to look at. Some of the, even some of the special effects work is done pretty, pretty well. Um, and all the costuming and stuff, while very loud and really not my cup of tea, I can appreciate the work and the artistry that went into all of it. And it is fairly cohesive. But yeah, the 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 way the narrative is constructed is is so amateurish. It it comes across as not even pandering, just like. It feels like almost like a temp job where where this this was a placeholder edit where there was meant to be another go through and they ran out of time or something. Uh, so the last film I'll talk about today is uh, Justice League. Um, so this would draw a close to the uh, what we're calling the Zack Snyder era of the the Batman's uh, live action franchise. Uh, like I said, this is more appropriately referred to as the uh, DC Extended Universe, um, being as not only did we have a Batman film that was not a Batman film in the form of Suicide Squad, which was directed by David Ayer, um, Justice League had an equally checkered production history and was actually directed by two different people. <laughs> um, so Zack Snyder's name is officially on the project. Um, but it's common knowledge uh, that Joss Whedon has a screenplay credit on it um, and served as director um, for a portion of the film. Um, some people say it was just post-production, uh, though I believe he, he did a lot of reshoots for the film, a lot of dialogue sequences, a lot of additional dialogue scenes. Um, and sometimes you can tell in the scripting because Joss Whedon's characters all talk like Joss Whedon. <laughs> um, so, like I said, putting just Zack Snyder's name on this particular chapter in the franchise is incorrect, but it's how we're going to do it just for ease of use and whatnot. But um, aside from Suicide Squad, at this point, we also had Wonder Woman happen in between. Uh, so Gal Gadot 
uh, debuted as the character in Batman v Superman 2016, and then she got to headline her own film, uh, directed by Patty Jenkins in 2017, which was a mega success, a huge success. Um, I saw Wonder Woman on, I think I rented it, and I watched it with my family, and I enjoyed it for the most part. Um, some fun action scenes, The uh, I think they call it the No Man's Land sequence, really is a, is a knockout sequence, um, especially like if you're really feeling the film at that point. Um, Chris Pine is utterly charming and uh, he and Gal Gadot they do have chemistry um, <laughs> there's, there's that now legendary gif of a I don't, I don't know if you've seen it but look it up if you if you haven't uh, it's a, it's an interview um, like they're promoting the film and it's uh, Chris Pine talking and you can see Gal Gadot in the in the corner of the frame looking at him while he's talking and she's just like biting her lip and like looking like she's looking at a basted turkey <laughs> like she just she's like licking her chops looking at him and it's adorable because it's <laughs> it's like i'm pretty sure that's just like her listening face but just something about it looks like she's just like drooling over him <laughs> and i don't blame her chris pine's a very handsome man he's got uh to quote me talking to my girlfriend just the other night uh, them eyes and them lips uh, very handsome man and very charming um captain kirk works for me and uh steve trevor works for me but yeah wonder woman was pretty solid uh although um the aforementioned Zack snyder uh problem uh the the problem where the movie is trying really 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 hard to to make you think that what you're watching is the most important thing that's ever importanted um the last 20 minutes of wonder woman really falls into that trap hard and I think I locked eyes with my mom during that sequence because I was like looking for help. Like I was like, "Help! The movie's the movie's gone off the rails. It's gotten really loud and really dumb out of nowhere. Uh, I need somebody to anchor me to reality." And I think my mom and I both locked eyes with each other and were just like started just giggling <laughs> because yeah, as soon as a uh, spoiler alert, David Thewlis uh, is outed as the true villain of the story, and he starts saying like Skeletor level stupid supervillain kind of shit. Um, and then she starts throwing like, I, I don't even know what kind of level superhero garbage back at him in terms of like verbiage and whatnot. Um, my brain just completely jumped out of my skull and I stopped caring. <laughs> the rest of the movie was very good though. I'll give it that much. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that Wonder Woman was a huge success. And now Gal Gadot, uh, has gone from relative obscurity to household name and then some uh, which brings us to Justice League uh, so Justice League came out in 2017 and much like every other movie I've talked about today uh, had some serious problems uh, the most obvious of which being uh, Zack Snyder's um, unfortunate um, I don't know if it was a suicide I think it may have been uh, his one of his daughters uh, passed away and uh, he stepped off of the project. Um, he removed himself from the project um, partway into directing it. And it's actually called into question. Uh, I, I don't know the validity of these, of these thoughts, but um, some sources have postulated that uh, he was removed from the project rather than, rather than he excused himself. Um, because something I haven't talked about is that... Um, Pretty much from Man of Steel onward, uh, up until right this minute, basically, um, the 
film division of Warner Brothers has been in utter turmoil. Uh, the on on like the management level. So like the CEO changed, and then the people directly below the CEO uh, either stepped down or were demoted. Um, huge reshuffling of resources and talent. Um, so you you had a very confused corporate environment uh, that trickled down to a very confused creative environment. Um, so some people speculate that um, one of one of these ripples may have involved uh, some people pointing the finger at Zack Snyder's Justice League and saying, we got to fucking fix that. Because <laughs> um, other than Wonder Woman, uh, they'd had more misses than hits in terms of critical acclaim and whatnot. Um, but yeah, Justice League was meant to be uh, a fast-tracked Avengers where we've had a Superman movie, we've had a half Superman, half Batman with a sprinkling of Wonder Woman movie and oh yeah and all the other Justice League people uh we had a Wonder Woman movie oh and now we have an event uh Justice League movie <laughs> so it was again a little bit of cart before horse um and this this movie I described it before as a like a lukewarm vanilla popsicle uh, because in my mind it's very much that I've seen it two maybe three times and I, I struggle to remember any of it. And what's shocking is that it's not even two hours long. <laughs> um, it's it's very brief as, as compared to Batman v Superman, which is, just, I don't know how long I talked about, but it is nearly three hours long. It is ridiculous. Um, this one's like an hour and 50 minutes. <laughs> and uh, in some ways, I kind of wish it was a little longer. Maybe it, maybe it would have had better characterization. Maybe it would have found a voice or something, but... As it stands, it really just comes across as very flat, unambitious, which is shocking given what it represents. It's supposed to be, you know, there are only two superhero comics publishers in the eyes of most mainstream audiences. This is the other one. This is their first at bat. Like you would expect them to throw everything they've got at it, and it feels like they only half committed to it. Um, so I'm going to reference my guide here and uh, go into the personal history with it. Uh, so my personal history of the Justice League film, uh, I don't really have any, to be honest. Uh, I had zero enthusiasm for it after Batman v Superman. Um, I did not see Wonder Woman in the theater. Um, and yeah, I did not see Justice League in the theater. Um, and I remember not really thinking much of the marketing for it. Um, all the characters, there were no like character reveals in the trailers or anything. So I didn't really have anything to worry about there. Like, um, we'd already seen all the character designs in Batman v Superman a whole year and then some before. Uh, so there was very little to get like really, really hyped about. Um, and even Ben Affleck, as much as I said, I liked his performance. It wasn't strong enough to make me like super excited to see him as Batman again. Um, and then you add to the fact that Superman fucking bought it at the end of Batman v Superman. So being as he was in all the promotion for it, it's like, oh, well, obviously he's going to come back. We don't need to know how, but obviously he's going to come back being as he's on every fucking poster for the movie. Um, so that took a lot of the drama out of it right away where it's like, it's like, you know, I know he's coming back. Why, why do I need, why do I even care at this point? Um, but yeah, I didn't bother to go see it in the theater just because, you know, by 2017, holy shit, we were inundated with the MCU stuff by then. And 
I only got so much money, man. I can't yeah. I can't be seeing every fucking superhero movie. I got to be somewhat judicious about which ones I go see and which ones I rent or whatever. Um and which ones I just fucking skip. Um but yeah, I had very little enthusiasm for this and I think I just like kind of casually rented it from a Redbox like a few months after it came out on DVD or Blu-ray. Um but yeah, the, the basic plot rundown uh for Justice League is um it's a set at an indefinite period of time following the events of Batman v Superman. Uh, so the idea is uh, Superman is dead and the world is kind of... They make it come across as like the world is weeping. Like like they show that like his funeral was this big fucking deal and like the whole world has been thrown into chaos and everybody's hopeless. That's, that's one thing that Zack Snyder's uh, superhero movies... Uh, that's one thing that kind of bugs me about them is that they they're constantly talking about the people like the people like the the world like everybody like everything that happens between these couple of super people like affects everyone in the world unfortunately we get so little of the story told from ground level that you don't really buy into it like you really don't see it from that perspective. I mean, they they did do kind of a neat thing in Batman v Superman that I didn't talk about, where um I can't remember the guy's name, but he's very good at playing these kinds of roles. Where uh, uh he was injured in the Metropolis attack from Man of Steel, and uh, during the prologue of Batman v Superman, we see Bruce Wayne uh, save him from some rubble, and he's paralyzed from the waist down, um and like grossly embittered as a result of it, and he ends up being used as um like a pawn by Lex Luthor um, in taking Superman down a peg by showing that he's a monster. He, he hurt all of us and ruined all of our lives. Um, and he doesn't even care. He doesn't even bother to talk to us. And he's not wrong in thinking that, but um, kind of reminds me of uh, some of the weaker parts of the Daredevil Netflix series where I don't know if anyone's ever done a, like a super cut of every time someone uses the phrase, this city or the city. Um, but I'm sure it's half an hour long because <laughs> they do that constantly in Daredevil. But there's a lot of that kind of talk where we're talking about like an entire population or a very grand concept. Um, but we're, we never really narrow the focus to key in on the details of it. So it just comes across as everybody making these broad assumptions and speaking for people who have no actual presence in the story. Um, but yeah, the opening of Justice League is meant to reflect that. So the, the plot is basically that uh, Batman has confirmed at this point um, via um, spotting some parademons flying around Gotham that uh, some extraterrestrial forces have uh, fixed their gaze on Earth uh, now that Superman's dead. Like their strongest protector basically is out of the picture. So um Outside forces are planning to invade Earth, so Batman has is committed to assembling a team of metahumans who uh, can fight back, um, who can stand in for Superman, essentially. Um, and largely the plot is uh, <laughs> very akin to uh, Avengers Infinity War in that it's a, it's a treasure hunt movie. It's a, a search for the three MacGuffins um, in the form of mother boxes, which come from the planet Apocalypse. Um, and yeah, the idea is that this villain named Steppenwolf arrives. Uh, he's trying to assemble these three mother boxes to perform something he refers to as the Unity, um, which will turn the landmass of Earth into a 
like a, a mirror of apocalypse so it'll turn the whole planet into just like a searing volcano um in the image of apocalypse uh, which obviously we don't want to happen um merry mishaps ensue the justice league is formed and the day is saved and that's your plot rundown uh so this movie um like i said had essentially two different directors uh so zack snyder's presence is certainly felt um especially in like the construction of action scenes and whatnot and the design motifs like the aesthetics feel consistent with what came before the two movies that he directed before this um but some of the dialogue definitely feels whedon-esque um and some of the sequences like uh, in particular like the the flash um, taking a time out in the middle of the climactic battle to save a russian family or eastern european family um feels very whedon-esque feels very cute in fact i do think it's kind of interesting that uh both avengers age of ultron and this film both both involve like some sort of global cataclysm uh occurring in a uh, a fake eastern european country um it's like hmm, i don't know like if joss whedon if that was something that came from his mind but maybe maybe it's a thing that he's interested in or something but um but yeah, uh, the movie lacks identity in a lot of ways. It it, it feels like it was made by two different people. Uh, you can't always really pinpoint who's doing what when, but um, in general, it just the 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 guiding hand doesn't feel as strong. Like Batman v Superman, it's a Zack Snyder movie. It's not a good Zack Snyder movie, but it really feels like his other work. Whereas Justice League. Um, I don't know. It it just lacks it lacks heart. Um, one of the biggest flaws of it is uh, the lack of co- cohesion in the team. Like the whole the whole point of the movie is assemble the Justice League, um, and it never quite feels like we get there. Honestly, like they they try to do they try to do some things here and there to to make it feel like we've gotten there um, prematurely in some ways, but it just never really feels like they the cast gels in the same way that like the Avengers did. Um, I, I noticed uh, there's om- an almost absurd number of like thank yous and smiles tossed between the, the heroes during the climactic battle such that it robs most of the proceedings of, uh, of drama where it's like, I, I can't be worried about any of these people. They're having a grand old time <laughs> and, and like them saying thank you to each other so politely all the time. It's like, you know, like, I get it. It's it's you're trying to create like a more upbeat atmosphere and whatnot, but it's like in the heat of battle, like mm, I don't <laughs> I don't know. This just doesn't feel right somehow. But yeah, the the cast uh, that they assembled for the Justice League is not not the problem um, for sure. Like uh, Gal Gadot and Jason Momoa are both interesting choices because on an aesthetic level, yeah, I get it. Um, Gal Gadot's interesting because um, I don't believe she's that great of an actress, but um, her her accent, being from Israel, uh, she her line delivery is it's kind of like um, it's kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger actually, where I mean he has an an Austrian accent, um, but to you know an ignorant American ear, it's going to sound exotic and different. Um, it's kind of the same with her, where it's like you, you know, most people off the top of their head maybe don't know what an Israeli soundtrack uh, accent sounds like. Um, 
so it comes across it, it's striking in some way so her line delivery at the very least is unique and it goes a long way plus you know she, she has the look she's got the moves and um she she works just fine as wonder woman and uh, aquaman in this has he doesn't have too much to do with the plot um but it, you know he he's kind of weird because like he he's this enormous jacked dude <laughs> um he's he's got a wonderful look to him um but i don't know if he's as charismatic as you would expect um it's it's kind of shocking actually that's like how can you be that big and that handsome and still just not have that magical screen presence that we all wish you had um but being as his role is very small in this movie he's basically there to be like party dude like he's kind of like dante from devil may cry where it's like you could you could replace all of his dialogue which is like party 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 hey where's the party party (laughs) pizza (laughs) radical (laughs) and it would probably work just the same but um (laughs) the the fellow that played cyborg um i'm actually gonna have to look up his name ray fisher as far as i know he debuted in this film like i think this was his first uh on-screen credit um I think he was like a stage actor before this. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he has a future. Um, he has kind of a complicated role. Um, they hint at it where Cyborg in the comics is a absurdly complicated character. Um, I'm not even going to get into it, but um, in this movie, they, they do hint that he has a strained relationship with his father. And uh, the scenes with him and Joe Morton from Terminator 2, uh, Miles Dyson himself, uh, I see what you did there, Warner Brothers. You take the the guy who made the cyborg, the cybernetic organism, and then uh, put him in the role as the scientist who creates the cyborg. <laughs> um, uh, the scenes between the two of them are actually pretty good. Like they laid the groundwork for something um, that I don't know that we'll ever see, but it some of the better stuff in the movie. Um, and then of course Ezra Miller as the Flash. I found him very obnoxious. Um, the Flash has never been one of my favorite heroes, but um, Barry Allen Flash is uh, oftentimes thought of as like one of the more popular iterations of the character. Um, he, much like uh, Ray Fisher Cyborg, um, he and Billy Crudup, uh, who plays his father, who is imprisoned. Um, this is from the comics and stuff uh, for being falsely accused of killing his mother. Um, his scenes with Billy Crudup are very good, and I think that's a testament to Billy Crudup. Like shit heel in his personal life as he may be um on screen he's a very talented actor and uh if they were to make a flash movie i would hope that they bring billy crud up back although um that may have been a holdover from uh zack snyder's watchman like maybe he tugged some strings to like get billy in there but um yeah ezra miller i really didn't like in this movie he's supposed to be the funny guy um but he just comes across as kind of neurotic and uh None of his dialogue is as clever as you would hope, given that the the movie like actually like devotes screen time to stopping so he can say something, so he can say a zinger or something, and it's never all that clever, nor is it all that funny. So it's just like get the fuck out of here. Like in a hour and fifty minute movie, some <laughs> like somehow you you took up half an hour of it just with your zingers, and none of it was good. Um, but yeah, like I said, Henry Cavill as a Superman, he does come back um, through some shenanigans involving a mother box. Um, 
And funny enough, I, like I said, when I was talking about Batman v Superman, um, he's he's Superman in this movie. Um, I feel like it was a holdover from. I feel like uh, Joss Whedon may have had a hand in that, uh, because this is a kinder, gentler Superman, like extraordinarily kinder and gentler than we've ever seen uh, in this iteration of the character, and it kind of works. Like, <laughs> like I really liked him in the role for the first time. And he's in very little of it, which part may be why I liked it more. But yeah, he, he has a little bit more swagger to him. Um, I like that he teases the Flash. Like there's a there's a really cute part where he calls him a slowpoke, and I was like, yeah, that, that's that's something Superman would say. And it's it's interesting that that they would do that. Where after Batman v Superman is such a pitch black, like overwrought, and like melodramatic film we have this absolutely fluffy just like light as air film that doesn't resonate with you at all doesn't like stick in your mind at all and yet somehow embedded within it is the superman that most fans have been asking for like since the christopher reeve days (laughs) um it's kind of shocking like um and needs to be said the the mustache the cgi mustache removal is noticeable um, I don't care who you are. You're going to look at that guy's face and uh, you're going to notice something's wrong. Uh, your brain is going to tell you something is wrong with this picture. Um, and that would, of course, be um, the very public uh, reshoots um, that the film underwent. Um, the story goes that uh, Henry Cavill was uh, in the middle of filming Mission Impossible Fallout, wherein he has a big, bushy mustache. Um, that movie's great, by the way think we've said that a million times on this show but um i guess either he or his contract forbade him from uh shaving the mustache off Uh, so he had to show up for the reshoots with the mustache as superman um and so in post-production they had to use all manner of computer trickery to airbrush it off of his face digitally and you can tell there's like this weird like fuzziness on his upper lip (laughs) and and unfortunately there's a lot of close-ups of said fuzziness because there's a lot of dialogue scenes between him and like uh, amy adams's uh lois lane that you know if you're going to shoot a close-up for her you got to shoot a close-up for him um because it's an intimate conversation you see and it it looks terrible (laughs) it's distracting as all hell um but yeah, uh, I I liked him better than I had in previous performances, um, and I don't know if he's coming back. But you know, if he did, I wouldn't mind, especially if he keeps doing this, because um, it's the one thing I'll say about Justice League is like, you know, I like I like this Superman. He's he's finally he's finally the Superman we've all been anticipating. Um, but I get what they were trying to do, though. I get what Zack Snyder was trying to do. They were trying to do the the long game where it's like, we're going to have, we're going to tease out Superman, like, beat by beat. Uh, Unfortunately, the way they edited the movies, it just didn't come together perfectly by any stretch. And then, you know, finally, by the time we got it, nobody cared. Uh, So, uh, nice try. But, you know, much like I said about Man of Steel, like, better luck next time. Uh, so Batman. Uh, somehow I avoided talking about Batman this whole time. So um, Batman in this is once again portrayed by Ben Affleck. Um, Jeremy Irons is back as well as Alfred. Um, so 
Ben Affleck's scenes are affected by the reshoots. Um, there are scenes where he is very red in the face and looks a little bloated. Um, so you can tell that that was a reshoot. And also, I there are some sets in this film that I, I if if Zack Snyder shot them, I'm utterly horrified because I'm used to Joss Whedon movies looking a little flat, like like. I don't I don't know if it's like a quirk of his or something, but I'm I'm just used to his products looking a little plain. Um, Zack Snyder, I'm not like Zack Snyder. Usually on a visual level, his movies are engaging, and if he's going to put his characters on a set, physical or CGI, it's going to be decorated. <laughs> like it's going to have his fingerprints on it. And uh, there's a couple of sets in this movie, like um, Bruce Wayne's jet. Like the interior of the jet, which is for some reason made up look, to look like a cave, the interior of his private plane, um, and like his office, it, it's like a triangle shape. It the the walls and the ceiling of the room are shaped like a triangle, um, and then there's like a haphazardly placed like quote oriental piece of art in the corner. <laughs> I think it's meant to be Japanese, but it it just something asian <laughs> um something vaguely asian off to the side and then there's another suit of armor in there that's like again vaguely asian and uh it looks terrible it looks like it would it was haphazardly put together on a very low budget um and i want to say a lot of the scenes that happened in those locations were probably reshoots um and a lot of the dialogue there uh in those scenes is just like kind of like push the plot along kind of dialogue like my theory is that they they did some of those reshoots to uh, bring down the runtime of the movie so they could expedite the exposition where they could just have um, let's have uh, Bruce and Alfred just dump a bunch of info in a quick dialogue scene and then get on to the next thing. Um, but yeah, in in those sequences, Ben Affleck's uh, his wig doesn't look like it's fitting right, like the the seam. Uh, where it was gl- the spirit gum or whatever attached to uh, his widow's peak looks like it wasn't fastened correctly. Uh, he looks a little thick in the waist, and he is red in the face, which uh, also points to another uh, uh, post-production tampering on this on this film. Um, it it was made very public um, through initial trailers for the film that uh, the color palette, the color grading of the film uh, was massively adjusted prior to release uh, because initial advertisements for the film had the uh, the con- the climactic battle sequence in the, the unnamed Eastern European country <laughs> um, they had everything cast in like gray skies and like it looked the color palette looked very similar to Batman v Superman um, by the time we get to the finished film though the sky is like pastel bright red um, and that trans that translates down to every scene in the film. The the color grading for the entire film, the saturation is turned way the fuck up. Um, so everyone looks weird. Like Gal Gadot's lips are too bright. Um, her skin looks bad, <laughs> which on a two hundred million dollar film or whatever, and a you know working on a beautiful canvas like that, you would not expect that to happen. Um, and then Ben Affleck's uh, booze, boozy face looks a hundred times more boozy. Um, all the colors look gross. Like it, it's too bright. It, it's garish. It, it's a little irritating, especially given what came before. Um, 
But yeah, Ben Affleck's performance is kind of interesting because much like the rest of the movie and especially uh, Henry Cavill's Superman, um, he is lighting the fuck up. In fact, Batman, Flash is meant to be the funny guy, but Batman's actually the comic relief of this movie. Like he's he's meant to be front and center. Like on the poster, he's meant to look like he's the hero, like he's the lead of the Justice League. And in fact, he's instrumental in bringing everyone together which makes sense being as that was his mission statement at the end of Batman v Superman and even on into Suicide Squad and stuff. Um, but in terms of characterization, like he's, he, he has a lot of like moments where he's stripped down and made to look kind of dumb and, and out of his depth. Like there, there's a beat towards the end of the movie when they bring back Superman and he, he gets dropped from a very high height and then Joss Whedon couldn't resist. He had to show that Batman's like laying on the grass, like um, complaining about his hip. Because <laughs> um, Superman reiterates the trailer line from Batman v Superman, the do you bleed? And then he drops Batman. And then a couple minutes later, we cut to Batman. He's like, yep, <clears throat> something's bleeding. All right. And it's like, wow, you made Batman look pretty bad just then. <laughs> and then it, it happens multiple times in the movie. Like he, he has a, running gag with aquaman where he keeps like asking him like you do talk to fish right like like that is a that is what you do right and but ben affleck being you know a naturally charismatic actor and like delivering the line in the right way it comes across as almost like a little ignorant and dumb <laughs> like, and it's it's refreshing but it's weird it's, it's weird seeing you know the typically grim dark batman be kind of silly um and one thing I'll say is, like, I don't know how well that sits with me, but one thing that's interesting about the way this film is structured is that um, they even explicitly address it at one point. Um, this particular Batman is meant to be older than everyone else in the room. And, you know, Ben Affleck, as far as I know, is older than everyone else in the room, so that works. Um, but the idea is that, you know, he fought crime for decades. Uh, he did battle with Superman. He feels guilty about you know maybe being involved in killing the guy in some ways um this this batman is not looking to be the leader he's looking to be the the catalyst for uniting everyone but he doesn't want to lead the charge like he he's just the one that feels like he has to get the ball rolling um which i found interesting because in my mind i couldn't help but think it's like ah like this serves a dual purpose of not only um giving us free reign to potentially swap out Batman with maybe a different uh, character, like maybe getting him a Robin or like maybe realizing a Nightwing on, on film for the first time. Um, maybe like retconning, like, oh, he's not dead. He's, he's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, as well as giving Ben Affleck a potential out where it's like this particular Batman seems like he's on the verge of retirement. Um, and in fact, like in the final battle, it, the... The way the script is retooled, it feels like they, they tried to brighten everything up such that we they weren't really allowing themselves to confront it. But during the final battle, it's like implied that he's trying, he has an expectation that he's not going to live through the battle or something. And he's kind of like trying to draw fire for everyone, like trying to die a heroic death because he doesn't expect to live anyway. Um, but they deny him that by being superheroes, you know, that's what they do. They save people. Um, but there's a scene between him and Wonder Woman um, where they 
explicitly address it where she steps up and she says like i think i i think i know what you're trying to do i think you want me to lead the team and this has nothing to do with the fact that my movie did way better than your movie and you're a drunk who's unreliable and warner brothers isn't sure if they want to keep you around for future batman projects (laughs) um that's my tinfoil hat theory on the matter but um funny thing about that scene uh, it happens in the triangle room where uh, ben affleck is wearing something that's meant to be a bat suit without the cape and cowl but it's not the bat suit without the cape and cowl like it it, it just looks like a, a scuba suit with some pads put on it like it looks like it was hastily put together and doesn't fit properly <laughs> um and also this is where the color palette comes into play um Bat suits are not meant to be lit and color graded this way. Uh, I think they used mostly the same bat suit from Batman v Superman. Maybe the mask was tweaked a little bit. Like his eyebrows and his everything looks a little pointier. His head was real fat in Batman v Superman. It looks he looks a little more hawkish, a little more bird like in this one. I I could be completely wrong. It could be identical, but um, yeah, the the lighting does not do his bat suit any favors whatsoever. Um, especially in this scene like it looks cheap Um, but one thing that I found very interesting about this dialogue scene is that they go from Bruce Wayne's garage um, into the triangle room and Wonder Woman comes in and all of a sudden she has like almost like a she has like a toga like it looks it's like wrapped around her almost like a sari um, which she did not have in the previous scene and I think Gal Gadot was pregnant when they were filming this uh maybe not the whole movie but the reshoots um something about the framing in a lot of her shots there's a lot of neck up shots of her um she's covering her stomach in a lot of shots and then this random fucking shit where she she has a scene where she's wearing a robe that she has not been featured in in any other scene in any other movie that wonder woman's been in uh my tinfoil hat tells me that I, I think she had a kid a few years ago and it was probably much like Henry Cavill when they were doing his reshoots with his mustache. It was probably just the thing where they had to get it done and uh, we'll fucking figure it out. But I don't know why they had to put that on her. Like in this age of CGI wonders, you couldn't cover just like a little bit of a tummy. Like, <laughs> like really? Um, I could be wrong, but that that's my theory on the matter. But it's an interesting little scene and uh, it, it makes like the the other end of things is is the financial end of things where it's like you know wonder woman is kind of a big fucking deal like it it would make sense like it would be unconventional but you know in this day and age everything's unconventional uh in regards to pop culture and media and stuff so it doesn't surprise me like it would not surprise me at all if if wonder woman was put front and center as like the leader of the team in some way um and in a lot of ways she kind of is for the the climactic battle of the film but um yeah batman has a couple action scenes in the movie Uh, he's largely ineffectual um again they make some comical moments out of it where like we we see all the other heroes just like handily wiping the floor with parademons and stuff and then we cut to him and he's like having a hell of a time with just one um there's a couple of moments where he handles like straight up rifles like he steals a gun from a parademon and starts shooting them it's like i know they're parademons but Batman holding any any weapon like that, even in the Dark Knight when he has his uh his uh remote detonator uh, goo gun in Hong Kong, 
even that's like it's a little close to a gun <laughs> like it, as a person who's you know read a lot of consumed a lot of batman media that's just bothers me on some primal level <laughs> but um yeah ben affleck's solid in this one he's one of the better parts in an otherwise flat movie um he gets a new bat suit uh it's like an armored bat suit that uh looks eerily similar to owl man from a uh, watchman um sometimes a character from uh the dc multiverse um which in recent days uh, it's it's all but confirmed at this point that uh that's the new approach that uh, dc and warner brothers is taking uh with their films is uh they're going to be dipping into the the uh elseworlds slash multiverse aspect of uh dc comics which you know some of their best material has come from that anyway so it's something that they probably should have tapped into a long time ago but it's kind of interesting they're they're deviating from the norm established by a by marvel and disney where it's like instead of creating a singular continuity uh, we're going to do the opposite and uh, we're going to throw you a curveball and say that all this stuff is its own thing you don't need to know anything about all the other stuff Uh, just show up for this movie and you'll have a great you'll have a great time and if you don't show up for it you're not missing anything um it's interesting like in recent days uh, hbo and warner brothers have been playing some serious fucking cards and it's a on, on like in wake in the wake of like covid and stuff it's actually been really interesting to see like the successes and failures of these these two companies that it used to be disney and marvel were shitting all over them but now it's like it's kind of it's kind of uh bringing to mind like uh the the monday night war the wwf and the wcw <laughs> it's like every, every once in a while you know uh every once in a while god bleeds <laughs> but um yeah, Jeremy Irons, I'm not even really going to say much about him. He's he's the same as he was in Batman v Superman. Still good. Um, we get a weird moment where, like, a CGI Alfred watches all the heroes take off in a CGI plane, and he's just kind of immobile standing there. And it's we never see, like, a uh, an actual live-action plate of him coming up on the platform with them. So it's just, like, this CGI stunt double just hanging out there, and he's barely animated. So it's like... Does he really need to be there? He we didn't even get a close up of him saying like Godspeed or goodbye or something like that, or saying something snippy. Um, but he's here. Uh, he's fine. He's Jeremy Irons. Fuck. Um, one thing that is worth noting though is J.K. Simmons uh, is in this film as Commissioner James Gordon. Uh, so we have our third Jim Gordon in a Batman film history. Uh, much was made about his casting being as he's jk simmons he's an oscar winner he's a fantastic chameleonic actor that can do anything you ask of him um in the lead up to the film a lot of uh photos were released of him hitting the weights in the gym and looking insane um (laughs) it was kind of weird because it's like i don't think you need to be crazy jack to play uh commissioner gordon but i don't have a problem with it (laughs) um he's also fine um as great as J.K. Simmons can be, um, he's given so little screen time that it it's inconsequential. Um, again, the the color grading does him no favors. Gotham is way too bright. Um, it it looks Gotham looks very soundstagey in this, um, which is kind of odd, being as uh, Batman v Superman did not look like that. Um, 
in Batman v Superman, it was much more grimy. Um, and in this, uh, the whole tone of the movie is meant to be brighter. Um, sometimes, like, cloyingly so. It's like, it feels weird coming off of Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad and stuff. But, um, yeah, uh, he, he looks right. He sounds right. But he's in, like, two scenes. And, uh, yeah, they don't really make an attempt to do much with him so it's kind of a shame because um this is probably going to be the only time we see him in the role um and he's such a great actor but he had no material to work with um but yeah uh the the last thing i guess i'll say about justice league is uh i like to talk about the music in movies um because it's something that always i always notice like it's something that in movies i like i tend to notice it or you know if it's a movie that uh, doesn't rely on soundtrack then sometimes I notice that but um, this soundtrack was composed by Danny Elfman uh, and I don't know that Danny Elfman has put his best foot forward in quite some time um, he at one point in time he was the guy uh, especially in regards to superhero or comic book adaptations he was the guy there's a reason why Batman 89 is you know a one of the standout examples of doing it right in terms of composing a, a comic book score um, right there up there with John Williams, a Superman theme. And there's a reason why so many comic book movies immediately following that, like Dick Tracy and stuff, they, they said, hey, who do we know that can do a comic book score? Danny Elfman. Um, and, you know, up until like Spider-Man and stuff, he, he was still kicking all sorts of ass. The Spider-Man music is wonderful. Um, he didn't return for Spider-Man 3, but... Uh, this score is is nothing. Like, like I can't identify a single cue from it. And I've seen the movie multiple times. I've listened to the score isolated at least once, like in in preparation for recording this, and I couldn't tell you a single thing. Like I, I can't identify the theme of the Justice League. And when you compare that to something like the Avengers, which has Alan Silvestri's absolutely brilliant theme like it's a really simple theme but that's why it's so strong like the avengers theme is it came out in 2012 and it somehow is like a brand new it's a like a new legend basically like as soon as you hear the opening bars of it it's like yep i know that's the avengers and that that's doing it right but justice league has no musical motif or melody backing it i i, I can't think of any music from the movie um, the one thing I'll say is that uh, <laughs> they recycle the Batman 89 theme uh, a couple of times in the movie and it's I think it's meant to like be a cheap pop moment for the audience but it's so underplayed and and they don't really follow through with it they don't like hit the, the, the strongest notes of it to the point that I bet you, you most people didn't even notice like I noticed it but then I was really disappointed that they didn't follow through with it. Um, and then I was confused by the fact that they used it in the first place. Cause I was like, what are we trying to say here? I mean, there is a throwaway line of dialogue. I presume in one of the Joss Whedon reshoot scenes, um, wherein Alfred makes reference to wind up explosive penguins. Um, so I don't know if they're trying to like point to like a continuity thing. I seriously doubt it. Um, but yeah, it, it comes across as cheap manipulative and wrongheaded uh, to reuse such a classic theme for a character who doesn't a character and a world that doesn't represent that which came before at all 
Um, but yeah, it's the the music is one of the more disappointing aspects of the film, and partially, I guess, partially responsible for that lack of cohesion I mentioned about the team dynamics, because everybody's like really jovial and and buddy buddy towards the end of the movie like like they're constantly cracking jokes and thanking each other and like i'm half expecting to like slap each other on the ass and say go get them there slugger um but it it feels really hollow like it really doesn't feel like the team actually came together it just feels like um if we if we have these these handsome ass actors say these lines maybe maybe the audience will buy into the fact that they're they're a team now it's like why because uh, it's the last ten, 10 minutes of the movie and they have to be a team now. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, I don't buy it, but okay. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's about all I have to say about this iteration of the Justice League. Um, I am one of those people. I, I don't <laughs> I don't send out hashtags about it, but it, when I uh, when I heard that officially the uh, the Zack Snyder cut, the release the Snyder cut um, was coming to HBO. Um, I did, I did tell myself I'm, I'm going to watch that, um, because I am interested because like I said, there's evidence of, of tampering. Like you can tell that what we got was probably not what this was intended to be. Um, and even just looking at the runtime, like you have this big of a cast of characters in a Zack Snyder product. I, I, I don't have the list in front of me right now but generally when i think of his movies i think of pretty long fucking movies and an hour and not even two hours long um like minus credits and whatnot that doesn't seem like him um and it doesn't look like him and it doesn't feel like him uh so his name may be on it but you know at the end of the day i i am actually kind of intrigued by the idea of checking it out although uh, dark side of things um i am a little bit uh worried that this will set a dangerous precedent um for uh fan demand for like everything having a a quote director's cut because not everything deserves it um and not every studio should be beholden to that um because the movie industry is an industry like just because a guy has his name on just because someone has their name as director associated with the product, it doesn't hundred it doesn't one hundred percent belong to them. And while I'd like to think that, you know, auteur theory is a hundred percent correct and, and true, you know, a, a lot of creative voices and a lot of hands touch every film that's ever been made, except for like some really obscure art house stuff where it really is just like one person like stop motion animation project or something. But um yeah, I, I hope that, you know, all the dorks out there don't do this for every fucking movie ever just because they, they want to see a better version of every movie because the, with the nature of editing and stuff and, you know, technology being what it is today, you really can go back and rejigger almost anything. Um, I mean, for fuck's sake, Topher Grace has been working on what his, his cut of Star Wars for ages now. Um movie movie like editing some people think editing is filmmaking like like films aren't films until they've been edited so the the idea of asking for everything to be re-edited it's that that's a unreasonable ask because 
you know there there could potentially be no end to it so in this case i'm excited um but i hope it doesn't become a very very regular thing because that would be exhausting especially for somebody like me who collects movies and shit <laughs> um but that i guess brings an end uh to the batman masterclass um this episode being the Zack snyder era of the character um this was a lot of fun i wish kyle had been here for me to bounce some ideas off of but uh hopefully my ramblings made some manner of sense uh but yeah uh next month uh, that would be october uh, we'll be celebrating uh kyle's killer october um which has become an annual tradition on the show wherein i hand over creative control of all the programming choices to kyle uh, who is a horror aficionado and enthusiast uh, and he will be subjecting the two of us to all manner of horror films i think he's been leaning towards um unconventional horror as the theme for this year uh, so look forward to that in the weeks to come but uh, in the meantime if you want to check out some of our other programming some of our other podcasts uh, you can find all of our episodes collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, we do have a couple of social, social media accounts in the form of an Instagram at catchinguponcinema, as well as a Twitter at catchingcinema. Uh, so feel free to hit me up at either of those accounts if you want to chat or uh, if you want to suggest future episodes or anything along those lines. Um, but that being said, uh, hopefully you all had fun uh, hanging out with me today. Um, Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.